Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray for your grace as we turn to your word once more. Help us, Father, to remember our foundations, to acknowledge that which special revelation rests upon. The fact that you have created all things, the fact that you are sovereign, the fact that we are made in your image, and that we are therefore accountable to you. And the fact that your eternal Son became man, that he might redeem mankind, who bears your image. Pray for the movement of your Holy Spirit in this time. We pray that saints would be sanctified and that sinners would be saved. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we considered Paul's paroxysmos, that is to say, his grief and his anger at the observation of the panoply of gods in Athens, these that were honored with temples and statues and monuments. As we observed in Acts 17, verse 16, everywhere around him, Paul saw images of false gods hewn out of stone, and this is what incited that anger and that grief, but to quote the psalmist, in Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Those verses precisely define both the Athenian gods and the Athenians themselves. But although their gods are nothing and the worship of them is pure vanity, still you can't doubt their sincerity because you don't go through the trouble of building such grand monuments if you are not committed. Indeed, they were. To this point, I recall reading somewhere that they estimate that just one of those columns for, say, Apollo's temple, but also Athena's Parthenon, would have required something like 66 cumulative man-hours. I'm sorry, cumulative years of man hours, 66 years of a man's life. Now, obviously, you had multiple men working on each section, but nevertheless, it took a long, long time when you're doing all of that manually. Such was their commitment. Such was their sincerity. And all these columns and all the other architectural details were meticulously crafted to commemorate and memorialize the past exploits of the gods 
as in the same gods who the psalmist rightly acknowledged never even existed and therefore rightly had no exploits. They had thought, said, and done nothing because their mouths, eyes, ears, noses, hands, and feet were ineffectual appendages, being as fake as the idols that they were affixed to. You've got to take a step back and consider for a moment what a thing it is to honor in this grand way the gods who never did because they never actually were, while at the same time refusing to acknowledge the only God who actually is, whom the same psalmist writes of in that same psalm and clearly identifies as eminently worthy of worship. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations like Greece, like Rome, like present-day America say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And that right there is effectively Paul's message to the Areopagites in what is called his Areopagatica, which is the address contained in Acts 17, verses 22 through 31, which we will begin studying today. And I do mean begin because we will be engaged with this for some weeks. So rich and deep and relevant is it. However, as I said last time, Paul's message at Mars Hill is also extremely simple. I think I said that it could have come potentially from the mouths of some of our young, even, children in this congregation. But that is true conceptually. And it is true with respect to the very straightforward line of argumentation and the raising of very simple and foundational biblical concepts such as creation and God's sovereignty and we being created in his image and Christ being risen to his glory and all men being subject to his rule and to his judgment. For those of us that attended Sunday schools as children, I think a lot of these lessons were learned by us there. So yes, the essence of this is children's Sunday school simple. The form of it, though, not so simple. Not at all. And the construction of it makes very clear that Paul is, in fact, no simpleton to this point. First, we see clearly in this address that Paul knows the Bible very, very well. And that is demonstrated, I think, uh, chiefly, perhaps, by his ability to distill the complexities of our religion down to the common vernacular on behalf of people who had no previous context for Christianity whatsoever. In contradistinction to his dealings with synagogue Jews with whom he holds much in common, he has no common ground with these people such that he can build bridges from that common ground. Nevertheless, he succeeds in communicating to them the fundamental tenets of our faith effectively. And herein you see a general truth that can help you discern between those who know and those who blow hot air. And this relates to most any subject, not only theology and doctrine. Really with anything, those who really know can explain what they know to those who don't. Whereas those with a more superficial grasp of a given subject require a common foundational knowledge with whom they speak because they lack the depth of knowledge necessary to lay that basic foundation for one who is more novice. And here's how you might rightly apply this to your benefit. You want to know how well a man really understands his position. Don't invite him to deliver a carefully curated lecture to people who are conversant in the relevant jargon. Rather, ask him to relate his position in an understandable way to somebody who is altogether ignorant of his position. If you have a young child with you, that might be your best option, actually. 
knowing that in the former case you may only discover what he knows about what other people know. What can he regurgitate from other sources? What can he quote, whether he gives proper attribution to whomever he's quoting or not? But in the latter case, case with a child or somebody who has no foundation in what he's talking about, you can gain real insight into what he himself truly comprehends on the matter. And this concept applied to our faith is seen nowhere better than it is in the ministry of Jesus, of course. You have there the mind that formed the world able to condescend to communicate effectively to mere men. So effectively, those who didn't even know him as Savior had to confess that no man had ever spoken like him. In keeping with this principle, one of the insights that we gain into Paul in our context, in our text, is that he who made the greatest intellectual contributions to Christianity and the history of Christendom outside of Christ knows the religion of Christ well enough to be able to communicate it to pagans who'd never even heard of Jesus. A second proof, though, of Paul's competency as an intellectual and as an orator is that he also knows their positions extremely well. Thus, he is able to springboard off of their concept of an unknown God as well as he is able to quote from and interact with their own religious sources, as we will soon see. Now, all of this is, of course, introduction to our text that we will be studying, and I have more of this to give you, but I don't think that I can make much sense of it without reading the text with you now, and so we will do this. Please read with me the entirety of Paul's address found in Acts 17, verses 22 through 31. Starting in verse 22, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. I emphasize my pronunciation of that because I mispronounced it last week. It's Areopagus. And he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, prior to the pursuit of our primary thesis, which pertains to the Christian worldview as elucidated by Paul, there is something that I think you need to know about this message, this passage, message that he delivers, and that is that there is a great controversy over whether this is even authentically Pauline. And so these questions pertain to what is called higher criticism, which is a discipline not aimed at discerning what the scriptures mean, but rather determining whether or not they even are legitimately God-breathed, whether they are accurate, whether the person uh, 
who is said to be speaking actually said the things that are attributed to him in this instance. Uh, before I do this, I want you to understand something about this discipline in general, and that is that every text in the Bible has been questioned in this way, every single book, every single passage. Overwhelmingly, these questions are baseless, and so I don't even generally raise them to your attention. Ephesians is a good example of that. I did that book study with you, those of you who have been here for a long time. I read something like 200 pages about a controversy that's really a controversy about the authorship and who it was, even though right at the beginning, of course, Paul says, I, Paul, am writing these things. Um, you know, I went into it and discovered that I, I, if I recall correctly, I think the whole thing originated in like the 19th century. There was no textual evidence that was new, that was presented, that was compelling. It was just liberal theologians wanting to get published, and so they came up with something novel as a means of doing that. So I encountered this stuff all the time. And generally, I don't raise it to your attention. It's in the realm of things I need to know in case you're encountered by it so that I can give an answer to you and, and help relieve that confusion. Acts 17, though, is different. While there is no legitimate basis to treat this as non-canonical or inauthentic or errant, it is true that a superficial reading of this may and has led a lot of real and rational Christians to ask some questions about why Paul sounds so unlike himself. I have asked questions to that effect about this text in the past. Uh, because the Christ-hating liberal theologians invent opportunities to cast doubt, they certainly aren't going to leave an actual opportunity like this on the table, so they exploit the situation by claiming that clearly Paul didn't actually say these things, therefore Luke lacks credibility, therefore so does the Bible and we shouldn't trust it. That's the idea. And what these liberal theologians are citing is that in some respects, the Paul of Acts 17 does sound very much different than the Paul of Romans. For example, as we will see, Paul makes connections between their pagan religions and Christianity. And this, for some, seems to be an ungodly attempt to find common ground between Christ and idolatry in distinction to Paul's staunch position against doing this that he very clearly articulates in other passages that he has written. Also in Romans, the accountability of unbelievers to God is the result of what is called natural revelation or general revelation, that which is seen in creation, i.e. the invisible attributes of God have been made clear through creation. They, therefore, they, all unbelievers, are without excuse. So it is the fact that they exist and observe, exist in and observe this natural world makes them accountable before God because they know they did not simply spawn from the ether, nor did everything else because they are rational, having been created in his image. Whereas here, the culpability of an unbeliever before the Lord owes primarily to the resurrection, which is an aspect of special revelation or the gospel. Also in Romans, unregenerate man is represented as being at an impossible distance from God. Here he is not far from each one of us. And verse 27, and finally, in an apparent, stress, apparent contradiction to the no one seeks God of Romans 3 in Acts 17, 27, an unregenerate person, they say, seemingly can seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Now, all of these questions have good answers, rational answers, and they will be answered in due time through our study. I won't duck any of them. In the meantime, though, I assure you that Paul is unchanged from Romans to Acts, and that will be definitively demonstrated. Let me, though, just speaking broadly, 
explain some of why he does sound different here than he does in, say, Romans and elsewhere besides that. First, in the Roman epistles, he is speaking to believers, obviously. And believers have a biblical lexicon, which is to say that they speak the language of Scripture. Believers also recognize and understand biblical allusions such that he is able to reference, say, a narrative in the Old Testament and not even uh, identify where he is quoting from. It's just in there. In contrast to this, the Areopagites know nothing of the biblical narrative, so of course he would not allude to it in that same way. In keeping with this approach, soon I'll be giving the gospel to unchurched junior hires, which I hope you're praying for when I do this. My message will be the same in substance as it is here week in and week out. My delivery, though, will be very much different on account of the fact that I would like for them to actually understand the things that I am saying. Okay? So I will expound upon the same concepts, but I won't use the same language. Otherwise, they won't understand me. I won't be speaking a dialect of Christianese that they are incapable of grasping. That's the same thing that's happening here with Paul. Second, though, Pauline authorship is questioned in our passage because Paul uses cultural touch points with these pagans as tools to illustrate biblical teaching. So though there are not biblical allusions, there are cultural allusions and even allusions of the religious kind owing to their pagan religions. And there are multiple examples of this which we will get to, but the most obvious is the reference to one of your own poets have said in verse 28. As I referenced in brief earlier, there are those who object to this practice based upon uh, what Paul writes elsewhere. They say he wouldn't have taken this approach, so this can't be authentically him, as though referencing their culture and their religions is somehow in opposition to things he wrote elsewhere. As we will see, though, this does not amount to that. Paul most certainly does not seek common ground with any of their religious views. He, in fact, references their views in order to properly explain and correct and rebuke. He is simply then taking what they know and using it to reveal to them what they do not know. And so, in substance, this would be little different than Jesus' teaching, you've heard it said, but... The point of Jesus raising what they previously heard was to correct it. Same is true here with Paul. Only instead of those who said being prominent false teachers of the Hebrew ilk, here Paul uses prominent false teachers of the pagan ilk. And this is called contextualization, which is really just application. There is bad contextualization. We have loads of that in our culture. But there is also good contextualization. We shouldn't be hyper-literalists and say that this is always bad. There is a good kind, and it involves understanding where your hearers are at and building upon their current experience and understanding. But, and here is the key, we do this in a way that does not make their experience and their current understanding the judge over truth, nor really the prism through which truth is viewed. Nor should we do this in a way that seeks to build bridges where walls properly exist. And Paul doesn't do that. I do think that what throws some people about Paul's approach in this passage in particular is that they are used to seeing this kind of contextualization happen in the New Testament between people who share the same fundamental worldview. This would be Jews and Christians. They are not used to seeing this happen with a Jewish Christian and a bunch of pagans who don't even know what a Bible or a Jesus is. 
Okay? And while I recognize the challenge that this can create for us, it is nevertheless fallacious and absurd to contend that Paul is in any way capitulating to unbelievers by simply referencing their culture and belief systems. Furthermore, in order to understand what Paul actually means and what he intends to be understood by his hearers, what they end up understanding from him, you have to understand the perspectives of the people that he is speaking to. In other words, words and ideas filter through certain cultures differently. So before you draw hard conclusions about somebody for what they've said in a given cultural context, you need to know how the meaning of their statements were understood based upon that context. We saw an example of this recently in our series through church history in CE Hour, Augustine is quoted both in support and in opposition to uh, the emperor's absolute rule. Okay? Context matters. Whom he is speaking to matters. The culture matters. And these are the things that we will set out to rightly divide so that we may understand what he actually intended and not come to ridiculous conclusions about this Um, being contradictory to other things that he expressed elsewhere. And thirdly, as one commentator notes, what we have in this address is almost certainly what is called a precy, or an excerpt from a larger address. And I've raised this numerous times. You should understand this generally when you see um, portions that are recorded from a man's sermon. These are smaller snippets, generally speaking, of a broader whole. And sometimes you have explicit statements in the New Testament that will identify this along the lines of, and he said many more things too. Common sense, though, I think makes it pretty clear that Paul's entire address before the Areopagites did not consist of not quite one minute and 24 seconds of verbal communication. Yes, I do know that because I timed it. Now, of course, that's in English and not in Greek, but even in Greek, this wouldn't have taken very long. So they didn't haul him up there for him to explain to them this new found religion from their perspective for him to then give a few paragraphs and step off the stage. Clearly he said more. What Luke has highlighted here is the portion of Paul's sermon that he believes Theophilus would most benefit from, which would also quite naturally prioritize some concepts that help fill in Paul's overall approach to communicating the gospel to various groups, which means emphasizing the aspects of his message here that differ from the delivery of his message elsewhere. The differences are the point. At this point, Theophilus already knows Paul's gospel well. What he needs to know now is how that same message is related to a very different audience, one that is not Jewish nor Jew-adjacent, somewhere on a path to becoming a proselyte, even really has a knowledge of Judaism or a biblical worldview. And we should all thank God for the fact that Luke does record this aspect of this sermon because we all very much need to know this as well, given that most of what we are dealing with now is not people who have a foundation in our faith, but people who do not as our culture returns to paganism. Now, beyond all of that higher criticism stuff, the last thing that I want you to understand for today is that all of the categories that Paul addresses individually fit under one broad umbrella and that is worldview. Paul is here expounding upon the Christian worldview. And what we're going to do is examine our worldview through his testimony, as well as the Athenian worldview, 
which is strikingly similar to that of many unbelievers in our day, which we will examine as well. But before I continue to use that term worldview, I think it'd be a mistake for me to assume that everybody really understands what that means. So here's a definition of this that I found helpful. Quote, a worldview consists of a set of assumptions a person holds about reality. It is a lens through which he understands and interprets everything around him. A worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, that we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation of which we live and move and have our being. So succinctly stated, your worldview is your conception of reality itself, which is to say that worldview is not really your position on anything. It is your position on everything, okay? So a certain belief on a certain subject is not a worldview. So to speak of the unbelieving perspective, the belief that marriage can be defined as pretty well any arrangement of persons or even potentially non-persons is not itself a worldview. It is though the result of one. Abortion is not a worldview. It is, however, the result of one. Criminals being seen as victims and victims as victimizers, not a worldview. It is the result of one. Sodomites destroying each other from the inside out, this being viewed as an expression of love and beauty, the result of a worldview, not the worldview itself. Skin color superiority, feminism, pornography, the green agenda, so-called, the anti-human agenda, the anti-children agenda, eugenics, euthanasia, anarchism. None of these are worldviews. All of them, though, are the result of one. And that worldview is the evolutionary worldview, i.e. secular humanism or atheism. And I've heard statistics that atheists are actually only a small minority of our population. This is said to be encouraging. This is why they say that no confessing atheist has a shot at the presidency. But I do have to say that whatever these people confess to on a survey, the success of atheistic proselytization is undeniable based upon the most important metric for determining the adoption of a given position, and that would be behavior. My question would be, if so many people in our society believe that there is a God why do so many of them live like there isn't one? So perhaps the rate of saturation and adoption with this is a little bit higher than the polls might suggest. Yet often we miss the forest through the trees here. That's one of the reasons why none of the things on that list have been conquered, and instead the list just continues to grow. And generation after generation and seemingly now day after day, new perversities are added to it. It is partially because all of our slings and arrows are getting directed at the symptoms and seldom ever do we aim at the root cause, which is worldview. And this is what Paul attacks in Acts 17, not the symptoms, the cause. Symptoms are what a man does. Now, Paul definitely deals with specific sins, specific behaviors elsewhere. Not here, though, does he? As I said last week, the city is full of prostitution. It even has a giant statue of an erect phallus. Paul, though, never raises fornication here. That's not to say that we can't or shouldn't. That's not the point. Again, this is filling in gaps for us when what was left empty elsewhere. But if we do this, 
If we raise specific sins, the objective of this should be to use those symptoms to hew a path to the disease, which again is worldview. And worldview is not first about what a man does, but who he believes himself to be and also who he believes God to be. And these are the issues that Paul addresses, and I'll show you this now. What we're going to do here is we're, we're going to fly over this text to gain top-level principles, and then in the coming weeks we'll return to the same verses and even concepts and delve much, much deeper. We're going to gain an overview in order to establish that he is, in fact, establishing worldview. And we are going to preface each of our observations that we're going to make here with either man is or God is. So you have two lines on a chart, and you're filling things in beneath those two headings. Man is or God is. All right, so to this end, verses 22 through 23. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So man is, first, a worshiper. And Paul's specific application here is to say that they choose to worship gods the way that a dog chooses his next lover, which is without a whole lot of discrimination. But the point that man is always, at all times, and always a worshiper is as critical to our message as it was to his, especially because we are an increasingly atheistic society, or so we are told. We are irreligious. That's the message. That's not the reality, though. And so what we are told motivates unbelievers in our context is simply and only biology, natural processes, natural observation. We are only intellectual and thus we trust the science. That's the basis for that. The denial of anything beneath the merely physical level is why that concept has gained so much traction. Our world, in contrast to Paul's, is at present very often acknowledging their physical nature while completely denying that they are spiritual beings only to behave in ways that are totally unable to be accounted for with biology. These slaves of science don't, in fact, engage in science. They, rather, are a part of a cult of scientism. Nor do they actually have scientists. In fact, they have priests, the sacred texts that change with the news cycle and sacraments such as abortion and atoning sacrifices such as abortion and genital mutilation, and original sins such as racism. All people are religious in every respect, whether they attribute their behavior to religion or not, because all were created in the image of God to worship God. And if you do not worship God, you will still continue to worship. You'll just find another God in your rebellion. The next point, though, that Paul raises is God as creator. And God as creator, of course, needs nothing. Continuing in verse 23, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So here's where you start the God is line in the chart. Okay, God is first creator. And when you open your Bibles, if you start reading as you would any other book, which is from front to back, the first thing that you would learn about God is that he is the creator of all things. And this, of course, is by God's design. 
Because if you don't start with that, nothing that comes after that is going to make much sense, is it? For example, we learn very quickly in Scripture that we are accountable to God. Why? Because He is our Creator. God cares for us in every way is another thing that we learn of. Why? Because He has created us, which means ownership, which means care. And God is sovereign. But how? Well, He's sovereign because obviously He was powerful enough to create all things, is powerful enough to wield all things that He has created. And we'll spend all of next week focusing on the role of God as creator. But here, understand that a lack of acceptance on this accounts for absolutely everything else that is wrong in this society. All of those problems that I listed earlier are downstream of this. For one and a quarter centuries, we have been teaching people that they are animals spawned from chaos, and increasingly, they behave as such. But there is no chaos There is only the perfect control of a sovereign God, and God's sovereignty is the next critical pillar in Paul's worldview, which he addresses in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That would seemingly be a knife through the heart of any concept of racism, wouldn't it? All men came from one man. And we will be honing in on that when the time comes. In fact, this has an application to Paul's original audience, which is why he raised it. The Areopagites themselves are a part of a group more broadly, which is the Athenians, who are very much ethnocentric. In our day, we would call them racist, even though I don't use that term because that is a moniker that comes from Satan. I don't believe that there is a a thing as a racist because I do not accept races, plural, as uh, legitimate categories. There are certainly people that hate other people because of the color of their skin, but they are not races, plural. However, the reasons for the Athenians' bigotry include, there are more, and we'll get there when we get there, but they include the dominance that they have had as a people over the fields of philosophy and religion. Surely also there is... Motivation found in Alexander's conquest of the ancient world. And then present Rome representing a consolidation and expansion of the Greek Empire which preceded it. And this I think is relevant here. Our people made this, they say. And no other people did. Therefore, we must be superior to all other people. And in addition to that, we know more. We are a fountain of wisdom for the world. Paul here says to them, though, that Greece and Rome only took that which was apportioned to them by God. So God is superior, and all else are just men. Yahweh, though, worked intimately through men. The Epicureans and the Stoics both had a concept of the gods that was quite different than this. The gods were distant. They refused to interfere in the affairs of men. They were unmoved largely by the circumstances of men and the suffering of men. And if you've seen uh, a lot of shows or movies that deal with Greco-Roman context and the pantheon of gods, perhaps you've encountered this because this is a very common idea reflected even in uh, depictions of that time to this day. What Paul is teaching flies right in the face of that. The Christian worldview rests upon a God who is meaningfully present in his creation, determining even the boundaries of the nations. 
But he's not just involved in the affairs of the nations broadly. He's also involved in the life of each individual person whom he has created. Verse 27, that they, individuals, would seek God. Perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. In other words, John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, speaking of the physical life of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. And Hebrews 1, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, what is evident to all men and reflected in every religion is that there exists in the universe an animating force. Now, with the secular humanists, it's, I guess, cosmological inertia or biological replication. For the Stoics that Paul is speaking to, it's some nebulous and nameless pantheistic energy, something that is present in all people in a way that makes all people in some way, and in all things also, makes all people in all things God. Our job, though, is to do as Paul and give personhood to this and personality and teach people that this force that created and sustains all things is Yahweh and he desires to know them and they may know him through his son. Pantheism teaches that God is all things and all people. And this comports all too well with the popular modern practical theology, which is that we are all gods. But Paul is teaching that God is near all things and near all people. Therefore, we may draw near to him through his son because he is not far from us. And this is because we are made in his nature. And on this subject, there is no meaningful even mention of the Christian worldview without this. So continuing in verse 28 and into verse 29, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Now the specifics of that reference to their poets is going to be explained in a forthcoming sermon, but simply know now that Paul is taking a concept that they accept and showing them that there is actually a true form of that, but the true form is quite other than what they have believed. The image of God is spiritual, it is intellectual, it is emotional, and thus it cannot be carved into stone or overlaid by gold. It is the human essence that was created by God, unspoiled by sin, that has now become spoiled by sin, but it is the true form that all their art and architecture are merely imitating, but spectacularly failing to do so. It transcends what the eyes can see and the fingers can grasp, and as such, it is not actually elevated by gold or silver or stone. It is, in fact, denigrated by these, because such are the craft and thought of men. Whereas our true nature is derived from the craft and thought of God. And because man is made in God's image, God holds man accountable for how he images him. Potter has rights over all the clay that he forms, certainly over his most precious clay. 
And so there is a judgment for those who willfully remain vessels of dishonor. And this judgment was punctuated by the resurrection of the only actual God-man. And his name was not Achilles or Perseus or Hercules. He is no demigod. He is truly God. And his name is Jesus. Verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. And that, friends, is an additional reminder of something that I have often taught you, which is that you can argue creation or other uh, forms of apologetics all day long, but your witness has failed if you never get to the crown of creation, who is Christ. And if you do not give his gospel, emphasizing his resurrection, and if you do not warn of judgment. You're learning here that accountability is as critical an element of the Christian worldview as is any other. And obviously that concept is woefully lacking in this generation. So we need to bring it back. But to start to sum this whole study up, you need to aim at the foundation, just like Paul did. Before we finish this, we need to recognize obstacles to this, and one in particular. And that is that if you speak substantively of the things that I have spoken to you of today, if you preach effectively the same message in our day, you will in a special way be called a fool. Very often we love our reputations more than we love God, so we keep to the bits that are accepted as religious. Jesus saves generally. Jesus loves generally. But we leave those teachings alone that belong to what the world has claimed as science. So we speak of a Jesus, but we do not speak of creation much because they think we're morons when we hold to a biblical uh, creation narrative. People say you're dumb if you reject the notion that eons ago pond scum didn't exercise its own volition by giving birth to our first ancestors. But understand that it has always been this way and it will always be this way. In fact, you're an idiot is effectively exactly the same response that Paul received for his address here. Looking ahead to verse 32. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. What does sneer mean? They think he's stupid. And they are audibly expressing that. So antithetical is this notion of a resurrection to their perspective that they have completely discounted and dismissed everything that he has just said. Okay? If you say uh, Jesus saves, in most contexts you'll be permitted that. But that doesn't make sense if God is not creator. There is a foundation for all of those things. All right? If you say he gets us, speaking of Jesus, that too will be accepted. But it is this that all of that rests upon. And if you are not willing to say that because you are going to be reviled and ridiculed, well, then you're an idolater. And I think you, you know what happens if you tell people that you believe that God created the world in six literal days, don't you? You understand that that limits you professionally in many instances, correct? And uh, if you tell people vaguely that, that Jesus loves them, that's not a problem. If you tell people also, though, that God 
controls the movement of every molecule in the universe such that human beings are not actually the masters of their own fate, captains of their own fate, that we cannot steer the ship wherever we like. Rather, we are under the rule of God. Then that makes people very, very angry too, and they will also dismiss you for that. But look at the effect of having left these things behind. Okay, we have let the world believe that chaos is their father for a very, very long time, and we are suffering the consequences of it now. And by the way, if you're ever feeling like you don't want for them to think that you're dumb, just think about the fact that they believe that boys can become girls and girls can become boys. And this, too, is not a worldview, but it is the effect of one. That is the result of their foundational understanding of the universe and reality itself. Okay, these are not the people who you should be impressed by, going back to last week's sermon. Fool says in his heart, there is no God. Give the fool a knowledge of God, a full and comprehensive knowledge of the nature of God and of his workings in creation. They'll think you're an idiot if you preach to them a personal God who created all things and rules all things. Yet without that, there is no salvation for them nor comfort. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's example. We thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to these things. Lord, and we pray that we would hold fast to the foundations, understanding that without them, um, nothing that rests upon these makes sense. Give us grace as we seek to shed light into this dark world. Find us faithful, Lord. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.